Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. We started a series last week titled Into the Deep to specifically talk about what it means to be overwhelmed in our worship. I think we lack as a church as a whole, not just this church, but all churches, all people who call themselves belonging to God through Christ Jesus. I think we all fall short of what worship really is. And so I want to make sure that I can do whatever it is I can do to assure that we know what that standard is, what God expects of us. And so we started this series last week by talking first that Worship is revelatory. And what I mean by that, if you weren't here, if you were as a recap, I meant that as God reveals himself to us through his word, by the power of his Holy Spirit, our worship should grow. As I come to understand that he is all-powerful, I should worship that aspect of him greater and greater as I see him be more and more powerful. As he is loving, my worship grows as I acknowledge and come to realize the greater extent of his love for me. As I see and acknowledge in his word that he has revealed himself as present, all present, near me, that I should worship him greater and greater as he shows me how close he really is through provision. And so worship is revelatory. Our moving what we know in our brain to what we know in our heart is an issue of supernatural revelation. Amen? And so we talked about that last week, that it's necessary that we know the Word because in the Word, driven by the Spirit so that we can have understanding, we're able to worship. Today, I want to talk to you, moving out of that subject, to talk to you about acceptable worship. What worship is acceptable to God? Because the fact of the matter is, we can know that he deserves worship, and we can determine to worship him as we best see fit, but there are guidelines within Scripture that show us what he determines to be acceptable. And so I, I hope to expose you to some of that today. In John four twenty three, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he says this, he said, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, everybody say true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So it tells us that there will be a time, and it is here now, where God seeks worshipers, but not just worshipers, true worshipers. And if he says that he's seeking after true worshipers, then the inference must be that there are people who don't worship according to the truth. Amen? And so if there are people who don't worship according to the church or to the truth, then they're worshiping incorrectly. And we see this incorrect worship throughout Scripture with Cain and Abel and how he presented, how Cain it presented or uh, presented his worship and 
how Israel presented their worship and how the priest gave their worship. And all of these people found their worship lacking, or specifically God found their worship lacking. So God is looking for people who understand acceptable and offer acceptable worship. And we don't, sadly. We worship wrongly. The fact of the matter is, we should worship as an act of service. Our life should be a life of worship. When I say I am a worshiper, if I mean anything other than from the time I get out of bed in the morning until I go back to bed at night, if I mean I'm a worshiper, any anything other than that means I'm not a true worshiper. It means I've relegated God to a point of my day, not my entire day. When God expects us to give him our entire life, our entire day. We read this in Romans 12.1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God is merciful, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Like I said, our worship should be a life of sacrifice. That is the sacrifice that, according to this text, is acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. Our life in its wholeness, in its completeness, is a life of worship, or it is not, according to this text, acceptable to God. But we should desire to give God all of our worship because of the, according to this text, the mercies of God. God has poured out his mercy on us. He has given us grace when we didn't deserve grace. He gave us Love when he should have given us punishment. Mercy is the act of giving grace to someone that deserves punishment. And because he did that for us, thus saving our whole life, our whole life should, in response to that, be a life of worship. Amen? Everybody all right? All right. As you guys know, I, I try to think very linear because I'm not smart enough to think any other kind of way. So this plus this has to equal a life of worship. And I want to talk to you about that today, acceptable worship. And I'm going to do that out of Nehemiah chapter 9. What I hope to do is give you characteristics, according to the word, of acceptable worship. Before I get into nine, I'm going to teach one through three, really, and then follow up with some rest of the chapter. But before I get into the teaching, let me give you some context, because context, the word without context can be misleading. So prior to this, in chapter eight, we see that they have found, actually, you'll have to do some backtracking according to who was the high priest and all those kinds of things. And you'll find that during this time in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8 specifically, they found the law in the temple. As you know, or maybe you don't know, 
Nehemiah went back to restore Jerusalem, both their walls and their gates. And in restoring the city of Jerusalem, their walls and their gates, they also set out to restore temple worship. Well, in order to restore temple worship, because it had been abandoned for so long, they had to clean out the temple first. And while cleaning out the temple, they came across the law of Moses, the word of God. I want you to get your head around that. The people of God had been so long not hearing the word of God that they didn't just not read it. They didn't even know where it was. And they were surprised to find it where it should have been the whole time. And so in their amazement, in their surprise, they bring it, they bring that book ultimately to Ezra. Ezra opens it and begins to read it. And worship becomes their response. The acceptable characteristics of their worship are as follows. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord of their God, for a fourth of the day, that's six hours. And for another fourth of the day, that's another six hours, confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. I jokingly said a moment ago, you know, if, if we last till three, it's not going to matter. These brothers stood outside, standing still for six hours while the word was read and apparently were so excited or so stricken or so grieved by what they heard, they remained and stayed another six hours so that they could worship properly. Amen? The question is, what got them there? What characteristics of worship should we be paying attention to out of this text? Here's the first one. Acceptable worship is prepared worship. It requires preparation. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they prepared themselves for worship. The Israelites, nor should we, have a fall-out-of-bed kind of worship experience. We shouldn't reserve our time for worship for when we show up at the church, or as it were, when they showed up to the temple. We have to prepare ourselves to receive from God. There's an old statement that I've heard many times. It's quite frustrating, honestly. People will come to me and they will say, I didn't, or they won't say it to me. They say it to somebody else, and somebody else tells me. They say, I didn't get anything out of the service today. Do you know why? Because you didn't put anything into the service today. You're going to get out what you put in. You're going to receive what you prepare to receive. And if you're not preparing yourself to receive, don't be surprised when you don't receive anything. 
your sacrifice of worship should cost you something. Because a sacrifice that isn't costly isn't sacrifice at all. Everybody all right? And so they worshiped in their preparation. They, they came to an understanding that they had to bring themselves to a place before they entered the presence of God in the temple space or in our church space in order to be true worshipers. I wouldn't go to an earthly king and walk into his court without preparing myself. I would find out what the traditions of the land are, what the expectations of the court are. I would wear appropriate clothes, probably find the nicest suit or tuxedo I could find. I'd take a bath. I'd brush my teeth. Some of y'all, I'd brush my teeth, you know. Not some of y'all, probably mostly second service, but you get it. Uh, <laughs> but I would prepare myself to go into the courtroom of the king. And that's an earthly king. And most of us would too. But we don't prepare ourselves to go in front of the eternal God creator, all-consuming king. Our lives should be completely exposed and driven to preparation. Amen? Amen. That's what God wants from us. That's what God is saying to us. He wants worship to be acceptable worship. And it's acceptable worship as it's prepared worship. Now, what did that preparation look like? Here's what that preparation looked like. It says the sons of Israel assembled. We have to be willing to assemble. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, as is the habit of some. The people came together in front of the temple and heard the word being being spoken. We have to assemble. Let me tell you, assembling is an act of worship. For me to get up and have the discipline to come to church on Sunday, on Wednesday, or whenever, if you go to a connect group, that is a discipline that shows that you are a person of worship, and that worship becomes acceptable. But let me tell you, God doesn't just say, assemble yourselves at the church for no reason. He tells you to assemble yourselves at the church because as we assemble, we become family. We begin to hold each other accountable for our worship. There are people in our family who have a need. You know how very few of them actually tell us they have a need before we meet it? Very few. You know why? Because they're part of our family. If my wife's sad, I know my wife's sad. I'm just by looking at her. If somebody in the church is sad, I know they're sad just by looking at them because we've spent enough time together to know that something's not right with their disposition. And so instead of, instead of ignoring them because I'm family, I call them or I go talk to them and I say, hey, I noticed that you weren't normally acting like yourself. Are you okay? And then you find out they have a need because you assemble, because you're familiar with one another, and in that worship God by taking care of your brother. Isn't that good? I, I, I've had needs in my life. And like I've told y'all, I've never had a $100 bill manifest on my kitchen table. But I've had brothers who I've assembled with, come to my house and give me $100 in my time of need. Besides that, besides the fact that fellowship builds family in provision, fellowship also 
helps us help each other. It says, pray for one another, love one another, encourage one another. We can't do any of those one another commandments if we're not willing to first meet the characteristic of worship, which is assembling together. You're all, I don't need to go to church to worship. No, you don't. And you shouldn't just be worshiping at church, but you should also go to church to worship. This is where the corporate body meets to worship and praise God. And I'm not talking about the singing. I'm talking about from the time you walk in this building, you're going to be worshiping and fellowship. You're going to have conversations with people you know. Maybe some people, preferably some people you don't know. In that, after that, you're going to worship in the announcements. And you're going to worship in the announcements. Yeah, you know why we give announcements? We give announcements so that you'll understand that there's service things going on that you can put your hand to. And your act of service is your worship experience. And so we worship in our announcements because it shows us that we have an opportunity to serve those people around us. That is an act of worship. We, we give as an act of worship so that others might know, so that others might know the glory of God, so that we can continue to meet and grow in the Word of God and an understanding of God. And then we open up the Word and we worship in the Word by, show, by having God reveal Himself to us, as we talked about last week, so that we might grow in our worship. And then we'll end on fellowship again, over and over and over again, everything the church sets its hand to do both corporately and individually, is an act of worship. And if you think it's something else, you need to reframe your thinking. I think people don't give. People don't pay attention to the announcements. People don't take notes or listen to the preaching because they don't understand that is our required act of worship. That is acceptable worship to assemble. But not just assemble. That's just a single characteristic. We have to assemble and fast. It says, by assembling with fasting. You know, the Bible doesn't suggest that you fast. You're not going to find anywhere in the Bible that says, now, you know, if you get some time and ain't got nothing better to do, you should think about fasting. <laughs> Jesus says, when you fast. Just like he says, when you pray, indicates that you should be a person of prayer. And people are, I've, and I'll be honest with you, I'm diabetic. Most of you guys know that because of my liver stuff. And so there's a lot of times I can't fast food because my sugar's jacked up. But fasting doesn't have to be just food. Now, everywhere in your Bible, you're going to find that it's food. Let me tell you why. Because it was, it was an agrarian society. It was a, it was a country farming society. And so they woke up thinking about eating. They worked all day to ensure they had something to eat. They went to bed thinking about what they had to do tomorrow to be able to eat. They were con <coughs> excuse me, they were consumed with what they would eat. And so fasting, because it took the majority of their time, was removing food from their diet so they might be able to focus on spiritual things. 
Fasting is the discipline of removing so that you might be added to spiritually. Now, why do I think it's okay to do social media or television or whatever? Because most of us spend three to four hours a day on, te on TV watching television. Maybe if you fasted that, if you separated yourself from that, you'd have time to really spend time in worship and prayer and the study of your word and all the things that include worship. Maybe if you put down your social media and fast that, you'd be able to grow in your worship. Maybe as you sat down some of the stuff you're otherwise doing, you might be able to grow in your worship. I don't know what you fast. I just know that we're expected to. Acceptable worship is saying, my food isn't as important as my Jesus. My social media isn't as important as my Jesus. My television isn't as important as my Jesus. And then prioritizing Jesus over all of those things. Amen? Amen? That's acceptable worship. That's a characteristic of acceptable worship. But not just fasting. I'm just going to go down this list right here. But mourning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. It says this. In sack, they assembled and fasted in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. It seems like a strange custom to us. But what it's saying legitimately is that they expressed physically the lowly nature of their spirit. They're saying, I am condemned, I am devastated. I am destroyed. And they wore it out loud so other people could see it. What would happen if we mourned our sin publicly? I think people would be all, man, that's, one, they'd find it very interesting, probably a little peculiar, but it would also create opportunity for them to tell you about the Jesus that you love that caused you to mourn in the first place. Amen. Because that's what God wants from us. God wants us to mourn our sin. Blessed are those who mourn is what the book of Matthew says. Blessed are those who mourn. We should mourn our sin. It should cause us distress. It should cause us to be sad. The Bible says, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice of God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart a remorseful and repentant heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You want God to love you? You want God not to despise you? Walk in the fullness of repentance. Be a person who lives a lifestyle of worship, which happens to also be a lifestyle of repentance. And you're all, man, I, I ain't got nothing to repent for. Well, you're a liar, so repent for that. Because we've all got something to repent for. I get here at 5 o'clock in the morning on Sundays. And I tell you, part of the reason I get here at 5 o'clock in the morning is because I want to make sure that I'm standing right before the Lord before I'm standing in front of y'all. And this quiet time gives me an opportunity to come to this altar or lay down in a carpet in my office and ask God to forgive me where I fall short. 
Because I, quite honestly, I'm scared of preaching hypocritically to y'all. If I preached hypocritically to y'all, I would be condemned. I'm certain of it. I'm so convinced of the justice and the judgment of God and that it's true and righteous that I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if I, if I told a lie from this pulpit and got struck dead. And so I live a lifestyle of repentance. And I don't say that to fluff myself up. I really believe that God's that, that justice-driven. And I know that that's what I deserve if I tell you something contrary to my own lifestyle. Amen? So we have to be people who mourn our sin. Mourning is a part, an attribute of acceptable worship. We should be like Isaiah in 6.5 where he says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King and the Lord Almighty. Or Peter, who in Luke 5.8 says, He fell down and cried, Leave me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You know why they said those things? They said those things because those things were the natural reaction for any person who stands in the presence of God unholy because God is perfectly holy. We should mourn and be scared to death with reverential fear when we walk in sin. It's not a message. That's not a five ways to a better you message. That's a keeping you out of hell message right there. So repent. That was Jesus came out of the desert. First thing he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I tell you the same thing. And as, as we keep a heart of repentance, we prove ourselves acceptable worshipers. And then finally, they prepared themselves. I'm still in the preparation piece, just so you know. They prepared by removing themselves from all foreigners, which is what it says here. While they stood in their, I'm sorry, they separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't sound bite me to where it says, you should stay away from anybody that's a foreigner. That wouldn't play well on YouTube probably because that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with other foreigners because when you intermarry with other foreigners or spend any great amount of time with them, you're going to end up taking on the idol worship that they take on. When you spend time with those people that aren't yoked the same way as you are, you're going to end up carrying the yoke they carry. You're not going to carry, they're not going to carry the yoke that you carry more often than not, because you've given them access, intimate access to your life. Now, you take that and you principalize that today. We should walk equally yoked with the people that we hang out with. I don't have to know you. I have to know five people who know you. The five people you hang out with will tell me who you are. You know why? Because you've managed to sit with a foreigner, quote, unquote, as the analogy goes, long enough to take on their attribute, their idol worship, or their whatever their issue is. And God tells us to stay away from that. 
But that should, that creates tension in us, right? How many of y'all know somebody and love them that's a sinner? That if they were to die right now, they're going to hell. I do. So what do I do about that? Do I just not talk to them at all? No, no, no. The Bible says, separate yourself. Be you separate from the world. But Jesus still ate with sinners because even though he was to separate from the world, he could still lovingly engage them while ensuring that he was never compromised. And so when I say stay away from sinners as your act of acceptable worship or foreigners as your act of acceptable worship, I'm just telling you, lovingly engage them, but don't engage them to the point that you take on their idol worship or their sin nature or whatever their issue is. Amen? That's good preaching right there. Number two. So acceptable worship, number one, is prepared. Number two, acceptable worship includes confession of sin. I've talked about repentance. So I'm not going to go back into repentance, but let me talk to you about the necessity of confession. Unconfessed sin will hinder your prayer life. How many of y'all want something from God? Do you know if you walk in a lifestyle of sin, unrepentant sin, you hinder your prayer? If you don't believe that there is a God, you can't expect anything other than a prayer of repentance to ever be answered for you. Who are you praying to in the first place? I'm not looking to have my prayers hindered. Now, that's not the only way my prayers are hindered. The Bible, did you, you might not know this. Did you know if you don't treat your wife well, your, your prayers will be hindered? Oh, I don't need that in my life. Which I think I treat her all right. I'm still working. Ain't none of us perfect, man. I'm getting there. But our prayer life is hindered in unconfessed prayer. I could prove this to you in Scripture. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, if I had harbored it, if I had loved the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You know why? Because I've proven by harboring that in my heart that my love for my sin is greater than my love for God. But confessed sin cleanses us from unrighteousness. Man, I love that. I love this verse. 1 John 1, 19. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what I love about that? It's two, there's two promises in that. It says, if I, if I confess my sin, he does what? He forgives me, right? But he could still leave me out here not talking to me. You guys ever forgive somebody but didn't want anything else to do with them? You know what? I forgive you, but we ain't, we're done. God didn't say, okay, I forgive you, but we're done. He forgives us and restores us back to righteousness. That is right standing with him, which means we're capable of intimacy with him after we've sinned and confessed that sin as we were before we committed that sin. Because when we confess a sin, it's removed from us. 
The Bible says as far as from the left is to the right, he places it behind him, that he throws it in the sea, that that sin no longer exists, which has been repented of. Amen? So I praise God that not only does he forgive me, but he has also restored me back to a place of righteousness. The reason I do is because I'm, I'm practical and I'm a realist in that I still sin. That's something probably a lot of your pastor friends ain't telling you. We're not good at this either. We're fighting the same fight you're fighting. And we're pressing as hard as we can press. But sometimes I got to get on my face and ask the Holy Spirit to dig sin out of me. Just like you. But you know what? We're obligated to do it. Acceptable worship includes hearing and responding to God's word. This. It says, when they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord of their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. They engaged the word for 12 hours. Oh, wait a minute, it just says they listen for six. Yes. But acceptable worship doesn't stop at hearing. It continues in responding. You know why I ask you to take notes? I ask you to take notes, not because I want you to have a bunch of notebooks full of scribbly stuff that I said. I ain't never said that much. It's all that important. But I want you to take that information, study it for yourself, one, see if I've told you anything that's not true. But also so that you can take that information and beyond hearing it, meditate on it so that it become part of who you are. Not what I said, but what I said in regard to the Word. And that should bring us to a place of confession and worship. Amen? The problem is we hear and then we walk away. And then we come back a couple you know, a couple weeks later or the next week or a month down the road and we hear again for 40 minutes or whatever. And then we do it again and then we do it again. But all we're doing is surface level hearing. We're not responding well. And the Bible says something about that in James chapter 1, verse 22. It says this, For prove yourselves doer of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, forgets, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Take notes so that you don't forget. Read the word, hear the word, so that you don't forget what the word told you. Amen? And then this happens. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, intently. I tell you guys all the time, you read your Bible too fast. You should be paying attention to every comma. You should be paying attention to what tense it's written in, the context, who it's written to, why it was written. You should be considering all of these things. That's to intently look at the law. Not just read it, but sometimes study it the law of liberty, and abides by it, lives according to it, 
not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So this, this, all these verses say what my pastor used to say in one sentence. Read your Bible, do what it says. You have to, if you're going to be a person of acceptable worship, you have to hear the word and apply the word. Amen? Take action on that word, which in this case, in Nehemiah, is worship and confession. The last thing I would tell you, and I think it's the most important thing, is that acceptable worship is God-centered worship. I told you I was going to teach through three, and then I was going to talk about the rest of the chapter. If you'll read the rest of the chapter, and I encourage you to do that sometime this week, if you can, all the way down to 37. So 6, verse 6 through 37, it's 31 verses. You're going to see the word, that's the longest prayer in your whole Bible the longest recorded prayer in your whole Bible, just so you know. And in that prayer, you're going to see the word you or your in those 31 verses 88 times. Get your head around that. You think they're trying to tell you something? You think this prayer is trying to say something? This prayer is that it's all about God. You're going to read that you watched over us. You didn't forsake us. Your hand was on us. You protected us in the desert. You fed us in the desert. You moved us into the promised land. You gave us the law. You, your, you, you, 88 times in 31 verses. Because you know what worship is? Worship is remembering all the wonderful things that God has done for you. And you know what the greatest thing we need to remember is? That the greatest thing that God ever did for us was offer us a Savior in Jesus Christ. The greatest your is you gave me your only begotten Son so that I might have the hope of eternal life. That's worthy of acceptable worship. Imagine, Isaiah 53, without turning there, tells us that Jesus was crushed and pierced. He was beaten so that we might have eternal life. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But all the suffering that he went through, everything he endured, all the beating, having his beard pulled out by the root, the skin flayed open and the nerves exposed, Everything that happened, even to the point of his own death, happened so that I could be in relationship with him, so that you could be in relationship with him. And the Bible says in that same chapter of Isaiah 53, and it pleased God to do it. That, that's the craziest thing to me, that it pleased God to crush his own son, to have his own son killed so that I could be with him. The only justification for that is that he loves me so much that he thought it was worth it. And that deserves to be remembered. Amen? And so as they're passing out the communion 
elements for the sake of taking communion together. I'm going to read you a text out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I know every time we take communion, I read this text, but it's necessary. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, the apostle out of his time, says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So he says, listen, if you, if you take this communion, aligning yourself with the work of God through Christ Jesus, but not in relationship with Christ Jesus, he says, he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, but you've placed a curse on yourself. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. I intentionally skipped over verse 28 because it's the, it's the command before communion. It says, a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, Lord, is there anything standing between you and I before I align myself with the crushing of your body for my healing, with the spilling of your blood for my righteousness and my redemption? Is there anything in me that breaks your heart? that you would have removed from me and then repent of that thing. Amen. And so before we take communion, I want to give us an opportunity to examine ourselves. If you can't think of anything that you're asking God to forgive you for, ask God this question. God, would you reveal to me anything I'm not aware of? If there's something in you, that's a, that's a prayer God will honor. Bible says in 1 John, for we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And because he hears us, we have what we ask for. It's his will that we stand in righteousness. So let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, I, we love you. God, if there's any person in this room who might have something standing between you and them, that causes them to stand unrightly? God, if there's anything in me that causes me to stand unrightly, I ask, Heavenly Father, that you expose it and remove it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I know I don't have the ability to forgive my own sin, nor the discipline, really, to walk out from under it, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, I can. And so I ask, Heavenly Father, that by your Spirit, God, you dig that sin out of me that I might walk in wholeness, that we all may walk in wholeness. But God, I'm going to ask another thing of you. If after today, when we walk out of here clean, we fall down tomorrow, God, I ask that you lift us back up. Show us that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that when we repent again, you forgive again. And then point us back to your cross so that we may turn away from that sin. I thank you for the, the right 
to righteousness because of your son, Jesus. God, we worship you, we praise you in advance for all that you're doing and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.